This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. They say that self-knowledge is the highest form of wisdom. And it's a bit ironic that people can be very educated, very intelligent, but never really recognize the essence of themselves, understanding why they do things, why they don't do things. And mankind has spent hundreds of years now trying to understand the human being on some level. And psychologists have come up with some concepts, ideas, much of which deals with abnormal psychology. But in terms of fundamentally understanding the human being, oftentimes we find ourselves clueless. And what I'd like to do now is focus on exactly that part, the inner workings of the human being. And to understand the human, what we need to understand is how God created him or her, how God fashioned us, and in fact understand what God put into the essence of man so that we could better understand what makes us function, what motivates us, what drives us. And to do that, I'd like to focus on a very interesting part of the Torah. The Torah says that Avram, when he was 99 years of age, God appeared to him and told him to perform a bris milah. At that age, it was certainly a dangerous operation. It was not something to be taken lightly, but nevertheless, God commanded Abram, and he listened, he followed dutifully. Three days after the operation, because Avram was sick, God sent three messengers. They were angels, but Avram didn't know that. And the story opens up where Avram lifts his eyes and he sees these three wayfarers, to him just men, angels cloaked as men. In any case, Abram runs out, bows down full face in the sand. Please do not pass from your master. Please come in. He welcomes them into his tent. He gives them food, gives them beverage, and he stands over them like a waiter. But the verses are very clear when it says that he gave them meat and milk. He fed them something that wasn't kosher, meat and milk together. And that fact was brought up in a conversation over 400 years later. When Moshe went up to receive the Torah, the ministering angels refused. They said, why should man receive the Torah? The Torah is not for man. Until that point, it was up in heaven. The angels were learning the Torah, and it's not for man. And God said to Moshe, give them an answer. Tell them why they should allow me to give the Torah to man. And Moshe said, wait a minute. Didn't three of you in Avram's tent eat meat and milk together? As soon as Moshe said that, immediately they agreed and they allowed the Torah to be given to man. Now, this medrash is a bit perplexing. Why? Because you're telling me that the angels refused to allow man to have the Torah, but then Moshe pointed out that they sinned. It's very difficult to understand. Number one, I'm not sure what the sin is for an angel to eat meat and milk together, but more than that, if you're telling me that a group <clears throat> sinning is a reason why that group should not receive the Torah, I dare say that more than one or two Jews have eaten non-kosher food in the past few thousand years. But more than that, it's three angels 
Over 400 years ago, they ate not kosher. Why is that a reason why immediately they agree the Torah is for man? And I'd like to see if we can understand this and understand what, in fact, the Torah is teaching us here. And to do that, we need a more fundamental understanding of the human being. The human being, and that means I and you, are very, very complex, far more complex than we often give ourselves credit for. You see, there'll be times that I'm kindly, I'm good, I'm a generous, nice person. And catch me in the wrong mood, and suddenly you see a different human being. If you ever study yourself with a critical eye, you'll see that you, as every other human being on the planet, are subject to whims, to fancies, to different desires at different times. And if you'd like to fundamentally understand yourself, you have to understand who you are and how God fashioned you. The Chovos Salavovos, the duties of the heart, a work written about a thousand years ago, one of the great works of Musa, explains that when God created man, he took two diverse parts. There are two parts to the eye that are completely contradictory. Part of eye is a neshama, a soul, that comes from the loftiest parts of the heaven. That part of me, the neshama, the soul, only wants to do what's right, what's good, what's proper. Everything noble in mankind's existence came from that part. Every goodly, kindly act, every act of other-centeredness comes from that part. The neshama of man is programmed with all of the desires to do what's right, what's noble, what's proper. And God took that and mixed it in with another part. There's another part of the eye that's known as the animal soul. The animal soul has all of the instincts, desires necessary to keep the human being alive. And if you'd like to understand half of you, you have to go into the animal kingdom and you have to study every creature having a part of it that's vibrant, that's alive. Every animal, the giraffe, the baboon, the octopus, has something to it that keeps it doing what it does, keeps it moving, keeps it alive. That is the nephesh of the animal. It's not a soul as in the soul of man, but it's a spiritual entity, it's a existence, we call it a nephesh, into that God put all of the instincts and desires necessary for that animal to stay alive. The robin hungers for the worm. The cat hungers for the mouse. <clears throat> the robin doesn't think about it. Well, <clears throat> based on the general availability, as well as my nutritional needs, I believe the earthworm is a good staple for my diet. The robin hungers for it. Within the animal soul, God put all of the desires, instincts, necessary to keep that animal alive and to bring the next species, the next generation into existence. The human being has a nefesh abahami, an animal soul. There's a part of me that has all of the instincts, cravings, and desires as any animal in the wild to eat, to procreate, to be alive. The I whom speaking to you am made up of two diverse competing parts. There's a part of me that's noble, that's right, that's proper. And there's a part of me that's based desires and instincts. And there's a part of me that only wants to do what's good. There's a part of me that deeply cares about other people. And there's a part of me that couldn't care less. You see, the animal soul within man is strictly hunger and appetites. 
And the human being is in constant flux. One or the other is going to control him, and one or the other is going to gain primacy. Much like a muscle with use, it becomes stronger, and with disuse, it atrophies. The more a person listens to his holy soul, his neshama, the stronger it becomes, the more other-centered he becomes, the more generous he becomes, the more magnanimous he becomes. The more a person gives in to his base desires, to his animal soul, the more self-centered he becomes, the more he becomes just guided and ruled by passions, needs, and hungers. But the human being is ever-changing. One or the other is always gaining primacy, and every decision that you'll make in life, every action, every course you embark on, strengthens one or strengthens the other. And while to some extent we probably understand the callings of the soul and the neshama, we often misunderstand the callings of the other part, the animal soul. And to better understand this, let's focus on the animal soul. And to do that, we'll go into the animal soul in the animal kingdom and see if we could recognize its component parts, its behaviors, and etc. Let me start with an example. There was a fellow in yeshiva who, when he was a young fellow, his father brought, bought him a puppy, and the young boy and puppy grew up together. As this fellow got older, it was time for him to leave home. He went, came to yeshiva, and every few weeks or so he would go home, and the separation apparently was very hard on his dog. And when this fellow would come to his house and would open the door, the door, the dog would come bounding out, and the dog was so excited to see its long-lost master that the dog would relieve itself all over its master's pants legs. Now, this fellow was very happy to see his dog, but not so happy with the reaction. But you see, here's the point. There's a part of the dog that's alive, that has instincts, desires. It's not a human personality. It doesn't have wisdom, but it has instincts, it has desires, it has needs, cravings. In every animal in the wild, there is an animal soul, and God put tremendous wisdom into that because it has all of the coding needing to keep that animal alive as well as the next species. There's an interesting article in National Geographic about two biologists who were up in the tundra, and they discovered two Siberian tigers that were orphaned at birth. The mother apparently was killed, And these two biologists found these cubs in the wild and they were going to die. So the biologists took them into the lab and brought these cubs up on bottled milk. And then the scientists realized their dilemma. You see, as the cubs began maturing, they got bigger and bigger. They got to a point where clearly they were danger to man and it was time to release them into the wild. But the problem was there was no mother around to teach these babies how to hunt and what to look for. They had claws, had the ability to hunt, but no one to teach them what to hunt, how to hunt. But the biologists reached a certain point where they had no choice, and so they released these cubs into the wild, and they watched. And this is what they saw. From the minute these now somewhat mature cubs were released into the wild, they began stalking and began hunting the deer, their perfect food source. But it wasn't just that they knew what to eat, They knew how to wait, how to pounce, how to kill, what part to eat first. Fully programmed into them were all of the instincts, needs, and desires to keep them alive. And if you study the wild kingdom, 
you'll see tremendous wisdom implanted into the soul, if we can call it that, of the animal. It's not quite a soul, but it's a nefesh. It's a spiritual part that's alive. No one teaches the bird how to fly. German scientists proved that, and it takes a German to think of this method. They took two groups of pigeons. <clears throat> Ones they allowed to, <clears throat> one group they allowed to just naturally hatch and come to maturity, and the other group, <clears throat> as soon as the pigeons hatched, they took them and stuffed them into a metal pipe so that the hatchling could not flap its wings. And they waited. And <clears throat> when the group that was still in the nest, <clears throat> as they matured, when they got to a point where they were able to fly on their own and left the nest, at that point, <clears throat> the scientists took the metal tubing and they <clears throat> blew <clears throat> the hatchling out into the air. And this baby who had never flown before suddenly flapped its wings and instantly knew how to fly. All of the instincts, needs, and desires God put into the animal soul of the animal, and that keeps it alive. And sometimes you could see what looks like complex behaviors. The animal has no wisdom, and the animal also has no compassion. If you've ever seen a mother cougar with its young, it's ferocious. It will give up its own life to protect its young. And it looks like a very compassionate, loving mother until its young turns two years of age. When the young is sexually mature, then the cougar mother will turn against its young, killing it if it comes in too much into proximity because what is considered love and compassion isn't. It's instincts, it's desires, and you could see quite complex behaviors in the wild. What you're doing is you're looking at the wisdom that God put into that creature to keep it alive. And sometimes you could see behaviors that are quite curious. The emperor penguin is one example. The female emperor penguin lays the egg, and it's quite a large egg. And then she'll put the egg on her feet, put her feet together, and kind of waddle over to the male, and gently transfer the egg from her feet to the male's feet. The male has a pouch, and the male gently pulls that pouch over the egg. Now, if that egg touches the ice, it'll crack. The baby won't be born. But the male will stand there with the egg on its feet, pouch covering it, day after day. The female will then go into the sea and hunt, trying to build up its fat supply so it'll have a milk supply ready for the baby. And here's the amazing part. The male emperor penguin will stand in the bitter, freezing cold, winds blowing, minus 60 degrees. It'll be shivering, eating up its own body fat day after day, week after week, often up to two months at a time. It'll consume 25% of its own body weight as it stands there waiting for the mother to come back. And eventually the mother comes back, more heavy than she left. The baby hatches, and the mother has a full milk supply ready for her. But here's the question. Who taught the emperor penguin those behaviors? <clears throat> Who taught the swan the courting <clears throat> dance? Who taught the emperor penguin that there will be a baby, and if this egg touches the ice, it's going to crack? And who taught it to remain standing there against its own self-interest? God implanted into the animal soul of each animal all of the drives and desires and instincts to keep that animal alive, 
as well as the next generation. And within you and I is also an animal soul. Part of me is that neshama, that holy soul, that's generous, magnanimous, and brilliant. And part of me is base desires, needs, and appetites. The I whom speaking to you am made up of both. And there are two voices. What happens when you hear about a plight of another human being? There's a part of you that screams out, that's terrible. What could I do to help? How could I be of assistance? How could I lighten their load? And there's another part of you that says, I don't care. I couldn't care less. You see, I'm made of two diverse parts. There's a part of me that's holy, that's generous, that's magnanimous. There's a part of me that's pure, appetites, drives, and desires. And I am an other contradiction. I'll give you an example of this in a much more mundane fashion. Have you ever heard of the SIT diet? SIT diet? It's actually an acronym, and I'll explain to you in a minute what the acronym stands for. But basically, the diet is quite simple. The diet consists of taking a large wedge of chocolate cake in this hand, taking a Diet Coke in this hand, saying the words, I'm so fat, I'm so fat, I'm so fat, then consuming the entire wedge of chocolate cake, drinking the Diet Coke. SIT diet is an acronym for self-inflicted torture diet. Guess what? It doesn't work. Now, my wife is one of the sharpest people I know, and she had our first child, and lo and behold, she went on the SIT diet. And I said to my wife, listen, if you decide you want to be heavy, I'm okay with that. You want to be slim, I'm okay with that. But the self-inflicted torture stuff, it really doesn't work. Anyway, this conversation wasn't going anywhere. So I took my wife to Weight Watchers. Now, this was a number of years ago, and I was still a student. And I had a break in midday. And the meeting that I took her to was a midday meeting of Weight Watchers. Needless to say, I was the only male in the group. And I got to experience my first Weight Watchers meeting. And this is kind of like what was going on. The leader got up and said, okay, ladies, tell me about your week. And one woman raised her hand and says, oh, my week was going great. But then someone brought out potato chips. And I hear the other women around the circle go, oh, potato chips. Another woman says, I was doing great, but someone brought donuts. Oh, donuts. I was doing great, but someone brought chocolate. Oh, And I watched these mature, intelligent people losing it. Right in front of my eyes. So here's the question. Weight Watchers is a nutritionally sound diet. You don't go hungry. They'll provide for you meals and snacks, and you'll eat better and more healthfully than you would normally. So it's so hard. Why doesn't everyone just go on a diet, stick to it, lose the weight, and done? What's so hard? What's so hard is when that chocolate cake is put in front of that woman. And there's a voice inside her that says, No. You see, I made a rational, sane, concrete decision that I will not touch chocolate cake for two months. And that voice inside her says, absolutely not. But there's another voice inside her that says, hmm. And the voice says, no. And the other voice says, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. Ah! And she consumes that wedge of chocolate cake. And if you think I'm being facetious, that's us. We human beings have two conflicting voices, and it's with us all day, every day, all day long. Part of me wants to help and be generous. Part of me couldn't care less. Part of me deeply craves a relationship with my Creator. Part of me doesn't see anything beyond the here and now. You see, the animal soul in man is dumb.
it's only created for the immediate needs, for the immediate satisfactions of its hungers and desires. It can't see the future. It can't know what's going to be. And the I who am speaking to you am comprised of these two parts. Everything throughout life will be a challenge. Everything throughout life, either one or the other will win out. And you can watch two people. One person who gives in to his desires and he becomes ruled by his desires and he becomes completely habitualized and becomes completely overrun by desire. Another human being who listens to that soul, listens to the Shama, becomes more exalted and more holy. On the outside, they're the same, but the inside very different. Every decision that we make in life will allow one or the other to come to the fore. And the more you listen to the soul, the more you act in interest of others, the more you put your own agenda away and look for others' needs, the stronger that becomes, and the more you give in to desires, to appetites, to hungers, the stronger it becomes. But the human being is ever in flux. And if you'd like to fundamentally understand life, life is a battle, a tremendous challenge, with these two voices always vying, always crying out for their needs to be met, and I, the person, with both of them in my ear, both of them speaking in my voice, crying out for their needs to be met. So here's the question. I understand why God gave us a neshama. Everything good that ever happened in mankind's history came from that part. Any great act, any act of self-sacrifice, anyone who dreamt of helping anyone, it was that neshama, the soul, that drove that act. So I fully understand why God put the neshama into man. What I don't understand is who needs the other part? Who needs the drives, the appetites, and etc.? A baboon in the wild needs those drives because otherwise it won't eat. But the human being has wisdom. I know what I need to eat. I'll eat what I need and I won't eat more. Why do I have to always be challenged? Eat not too much, the right amount. Why do I have to always be challenged what to do with my time, how to act? Why can't God just take the neshama, put it into man, and let man be great and noble and proper? Who needs the other part, the animal soul in man? And this question is a fundamental question to understanding life. And I'd like to share with you the answer. You see, to understand this answer, I'll ask you an interesting question. Does an angel have free will? Right, does an angel have free will? Now, if you've studied much about Jewish thought, you'll know, everyone will tell you, certainly not, angels don't have free will, everyone knows that. Uh, But it happens to be incorrect. An angel has free will. An angel has free will as man has free will. The distinction between an angel and man is not in free will. It's something very different. And to explain what I mean, I'll show you an example. Let's say I say to you as follows. Let's say I pull out a $100 bill, and I say to you, this $100 bill is yours if you put your hand into that fire for one minute. Here's the question. Would you take me up on the offer? Now, I kind of doubt you would, even if you needed money very badly, because burning your hand is just not worth $100. It's dumb, self-inflicted injuries, and you're not going to do it. So here's the question. Do you have free will to put your hand into a fire? In theory, you do. I mean, you could do it, but you never would. That's the type of free will that an angel has. You see, an angel recognizes every commandment that God gave as good for it 
and good for the world at large. And every sin that God warned us against, an angel recognizes as damaging to itself and damaging to the world at large. Does an angel have free will? Absolutely. It could violate God's wishes every day of the week. But it wouldn't do it. Why? Because much like you putting your hand in the fire, it's foolish, you would never do it. An angel would never disobey God's command because everything God commands is for the good, for the betterment of that angel, for the betterment of the world. And therefore, in theory, an angel has free will, but that's not man. You see, when God took the soul and God put it into the body, God put us here for one reason, to allow us to grow, to allow us to become the great people we can become. The human being was put into a place where he can be exalted miles above an angel, but he could also be leagues below. But you see, it's man's free choice. It's man's choice that will make him. But to give man free choice, there's a major problem. The soul of man, the neshama, is so pure, so holy, so brilliant, that man would never sin. Any sin in the Torah damages me. I wouldn't do it. If you offer me a cup of bleach for a thousand dollars, just drink the cup and you get them, I wouldn't do it because it's foolish. So how could you take an ashama, put it into the body, and give that person free will, challenges of life? Of course it would obey every commandment of God. Of course it would do everything right. But that's because it sees things with such clarity. And it would have the type of free will as an angel, and you would not have this entity called man. To allow for an entity called man, God took this other part. God put man, the pure neshama, mixed in this animal soul, and the I that I'm speaking to you, and both. I have both parts of me, both parts crying out for the needs to be met, and now the human being is in complete balance. Now the human being can really choose who you become in life, exalted or lowly, is up to you. But it's free choice in the sense that you could easily do one or the other, and it's not so obvious. If you'd like a parable to what our conscious life is like, imagine it's Purim. And oftentimes the fellows in yeshiva will drink a little bit too much maybe Purim. And imagine you have a young fellow, an 18-year-old, and this is the first Purim that he gets drunk. And you see him in the street. And you run over to Mushi, what are you doing? I'm playing. <laughs> Mushi, you're playing in traffic. I know, playing with the cars. Mushi, you're going to get hit by one of those cars. I know, crack, smack my back. Mushi, you're going to get hit by a car. I'm going to send you to the hospital. Uh, yeah, you're gonna, yeah, I know, crack my back, send me to the hospital. The doctors will put the pins in, ding, ding, when I go through the, <clears throat> in the airport through the metal detector. <laughs> Let's stop. <clears throat> What's going on here? You're talking to him. He's obviously conscious. He tells you about the doctor, about the metal detector. He's somewhat there. So what's going on? What's going on is he's drunk. You see, the next morning when he awakens and you explain to him what he's doing the night before, he'll be filled with dread. Oh my God, what was I doing? A car. But in his drunken state, he doesn't see it. He doesn't recognize the future. The animal soul in man blinds me to anything beyond the here and now. The animal soul has desires and needs that need to be met immediately and the consequences of which do not matter. And now the human being is really challenged. Now the human being is in a state 
<clears throat> being able to choose his destiny, but in a real way. <clears throat> not in a way where he sees things so clearly, <clears throat> not where I see that every generous act shapes me into a better person, <clears throat> helps the world, and is something I'll be ever joyful about. But in a way where I'm confused, where I don't see the results, I don't see the future. And if you'd like to understand the human being, you have to understand that there are two parts to us. And it's not just competing voices as in the piece of chocolate cake, I want it and I don't want it. It's a confusion. It's a clouding of my mind's eye. And it affects every decision in my life. Now, obviously, God wants us to succeed. And God gave us the ability to succeed. But how does that happen? To allow us to successfully live life, God gave us the guidebook. The Torah, the mitzvahs in the Torah are the systems of spiritual self-perfection. God wrote the Torah as the method. Follow these ways and you'll grow. Follow these ways and you'll become greater and greater. And every mitzvah in the Torah helps a person become more holy, more proper. And the chovas, the lavavas, the duties of the heart, explains to us something fundamental about almost all of the mitzvahs in the Torah. Let's take one, not eating tray food, eating kosher. Okay, so here's the observation. You have kosher meat, absolutely fine. Kosher milk, absolutely fine. Cook them together, all of a sudden it's not kosher, boom. What happened? The meat was kosher. The milk was kosher. Eat them separately, you're fine. Cook them together, shoop, all of a sudden, no good. Well, why? What, what, what's going on? <clears throat> so the chovos, the lovos, the duties of the heart, explains to us what's going on. <clears throat> the creator of the heavens and the earth and the creator of man fashioned us in such a way <clears throat> where we are in balance. And the food that we ingest strengthens us. <clears throat> Certain foods strengthen us in one way. <clears throat> Certain foods strengthen us in another way. There are certain combinations of foods and certain foods in general that give an inordinate strengthening to the animal soul of man. How it functions, you have to be a scientist of the soul, but when a person eats food that's not kosher, it strengthens the animal soul within him. It makes it harder for him to experience God's presence. It makes it harder for him to be generous and magnanimous. In the balance, it gives strength to one side over the other. Another example. Of all the kosher animals, none of them are predators. The cow is bovine, eats grass, the sheep, the goat. None of the kosher animals are predatory. And the commentaries explain to us why. When you eat the meat of the animal, part of the nefesh, part of that soul is there. The animal's dead, nefesh isn't there mostly, but there are tinge elements. And when you eat the meat of a predatory animal, part of that gets ingested into you, and you then become more predatory, more domineering, more aggressive. Foods that we consume affect us. If you ever have a, if you ever had a problem with a temper, and you went to the psychologist, one of the first questions that a therapist will ask you is, "How much coffee do you drink?" How much coffee? What's the difference? How much coffee do you drink? Because caffeine will cause an edginess. You drink too much, and you get wired, and you'll much more easily lose your temper. Why is that? I'm, I'm the same person. <clears throat> Why would the same line you say to me, if I had the four cups of coffee, set me off, but if I didn't have it, <clears throat> wouldn't set me off? And the answer is because foods affect us. But <clears throat> as they affect us in an obvious sort of gross manner, 
and they also affect us in a much more subtle manner. And the Torah warns us against certain actions and certain foods because they give an inordinate strengthening to the animal soul of man. And the Torah is a system of self-perfection. The way the Talmud describes it, non-kosher food deadens the heart of man. If you ever go to the dentist and you get the Novocaine shot, and afterwards when you speak to people, you have to be careful you don't drool because your, your lips are still numb. You can't feel anything on your lips because they're, they're numb. Non-kosher food deadens the heart of man. It makes it harder for me to feel another person's pain. It makes it harder for me to feel the sanctity of the Sabbath. It makes it harder for me to experience God's presence. And I've seen this on many occasions. I'll be speaking to a person, and after not a long amount of time, we're speaking about certain complex subjects, and I say to myself, it's obvious this person eats not kosher food. There's a deadening of the heart. And the Torah was given to us to allow us to grow and to accomplish, to perfect ourselves. Every mitzvah in the Torah guides me how to grow. The Torah in general is a spiritual nourishment of the human being. And in fact, every mitzvah of the Torah helps a person become a better person. And that, I believe, is the answer to the question we started with. When Moshe said to the angels, you have to give the Torah to man because didn't three of you eat meat and milk together? You know what he was saying? Angels wouldn't sin. You would not disobey God. Why did you eat meat and milk together? Because it doesn't damage an angel. An angel doesn't have that other part of him. He doesn't have that animal soul. So if an angel would, were to eat non-kosher, it wouldn't affect him. He can't strengthen the animal soul within him. He doesn't have it. The fact that you ate it why did you do it? Because it doesn't damage you. And says Moshe to the angels, don't you get it? That's exactly the point. Study the Torah. So many of the mitzvahs are directed to man. Man who is in this balance. Man who's made up of these two contradictory parts. The mitzvahs of the Torah helps man grow and accomplish. Helps that neshama, helps that holy soul become higher and more exalted. But all of the mitzvahs center around that point. When the angels heard that argument... Immediately, you're right, immediately agreed. Why? Because it's accurate, it's correct. And on a fundamental level, if you'd like to understand the human, you have to understand that we're made up of these two competing parts, and you have to understand that the mitzvahs of the Torah is the system of self-perfection. And I have one more observation to share on this point. Here's an interesting thought. Imagine it's Yom Kippur, holiest day of the year. And you're in the synagogue, and it's a long day of prayer, and a long day of repentance. And you have a lot of work to do. You want to think about your future, think about your relationships, what you've done right, what you've done wrong. And it requires a lot of energy. Wouldn't you imagine that the Torah would caution us, make sure before you show up in the morning that you eat a big breakfast. Come into the synagogue, fill, because you have a lot of work to do that day, you've got to be focused, you've got to have energy, and make sure you eat a solid meal. Yeah, that's not what the Torah says. We fast on Yom Kippur, we don't eat. Now why in the world would it be that we don't eat and we don't drink on that day? It's not a day of mourning, not a day of sadness, not a day to sit on the floor and cry. It's a day of happiness. As a matter of fact, it's the holiest day of the year. It's a day when a Jew can come closest to his, her creator, and it's a magnificent day. Why shouldn't we eat? And when you understand the mitzvahs of the Torah and the human personality, you understand the reason. You see, what happens is, somewhere during the day, maybe noon, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 
I start getting lightheaded, I start getting a little weak, and it's at that point that I could do my clearest thinking. You see, all day, every day, there are two parts in my conscious mind, my neshama and the animal soul, and each one is competing. But when you don't feed the animal soul for a while, the body starts getting weaker, has less sway, less control, and I could see things with a greater level of clarity. I could understand things. I could see the future. I could ask myself that key critical question, where do I want to be two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now, and what direction do I want to head in? But that clarity only comes from weakening the animal soul. Now let's not make any mistake. Judaism is not an aesthetic religion. There are certain religions that ban pleasures. It's not at all a concept that's Jewish. God created every pleasure, and God intends for us to use them. But that's the point. Tools to be used. And tools to be used for growth. And tools to be used in part of being a great person growing. Not being controlled by them, but using them. And most people fundamentally misunderstand pleasure and they confuse it with desire. If a person is racked with desire, all day long lusting and hungering, that is not a joyful, happy person. Have you ever seen a man, have women in situations where they're constantly lusting and hungry? It's not a very comfortable, enjoyable situation to be in. And it's certainly not what God created us for, not what God wants. And it's not pleasure. Every pleasure in the world was created for man's benefit. But it's to be used in the right way, in the right time, in the right measure. And a very strange thing happens when a person uses life properly. You have a diet and you find that you enjoy your food to a much greater extent. Most people find when they put themselves on a normal, well-balanced diet, that they not only do they eat better, but they actually enjoy the food more. And why is that? Because there's control, you focus on the food, you enjoy it. And I want to share with you one of the most ironic observations. Imagine we have a hedonist. A man who says, I don't care about anyone or anything, not God, not the world to come, not other people. I care about me and my pleasures. Eat Drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I am a absolute hedonist. Pleasures are my goal. If I were counseling that person, I would say to him, fellow, listen carefully. The Torah is the formula for your maximizing your pleasure. A Torah. I'm restricting. I can't do this. I can't do that. <clears throat> okay. But listen very carefully. What's the alternative? <clears throat> Lusting and hungers and being ruled by appetites and jealousies and passions and angers. Would you like to see a human being in utter torture? <clears throat> Watch a human being who's constantly <clears throat> insulted, constantly assaulted, <clears throat> constantly living in conflict. You see, if you don't control the animal soul within you, it gains primacy. And guess what? I don't care how wealthy you are, you can't own every building in Manhattan. <clears throat> I don't care how handsome you are, you can't have every woman <clears throat> in Hollywood. And if you train yourself to desire and need, to hunger, what you're going to train yourself is in appetites and desires and needs and hungers, and they grow stronger and stronger, and they become more and more dominant, and you lead the life of a slave, a slave to your passions. Not only isn't it a very happy life, 
It's not a very successful life. When God created us, he gave us the system of self-perfection. He put us in perfect balance. Both sides of me are going to be pulling. But as God gave us the directional guidebook. He gave us the guidebook of spiritual self-perfection and follow it and obviously you'll grow. But more than that, follow it and you'll be more satisfied and you'll be happier. You'll enjoy your stay on this planet because your creator made you and gave you this book as the guidebook how to lead your life. And when you follow it, you enjoy life to a much greater extent. It's not the reason for life. <clears throat> Pleasures are tools and not the end goal. <clears throat> but the bottom line is when you lead a life that way, you'll be happier and you'll be more satisfied. And I think that this Medrash is sharing with us an eye-opening concept. <clears throat> what Moshe was saying to the angels were, <clears throat> was, read the Torah. So many of those mitzvahs don't apply to an angel. An angel is perfect, but an angel is perfect by birth. The angel didn't choose to be perfect. It was pre-programmed with wisdom, with understanding. And there's a part of me that was exactly programmed that way. There's a part of me that's brilliant and incisive. There's a part of me that only sees the future. And there's a part of me that deeply cares for other people. But if you took that part alone and put it into man, there would be no entity called free will, There'd be no entity called growth. You see, the growth of the person comes from the challenge. I want and I don't. I do and I don't. I don't. And I choose right. That's my choice, my volition, my decision. And it's credited to me because it is me. But there's an inherent risk. To give that human being free will, it can't be like putting my hand in a fire. And it can't be so obvious the damage that comes to me by not obeying God's laws. And therefore, God put us in a state where we're totally confused. Like that drunk fellow who, I don't know, the car is... Sometimes we see things with tremendous clarity, and the next minute we're gone. One minute, I have a prayer book in my hand, I'm talking to God right there. The next minute, I'm a million miles away. And that is life. But that's what allows us to be challenged. That's what allows us to choose... And ultimately, that is the potential of man. Man can be greater than the angels. Man can be lower than the lowest. And every human being that you see is in constant flux. Every decision we make, everything we engage in, affects us in that way. And that is one of the great challenges of life. You see, there are only so many mitzvahs and only so many situations you can apply it. How are we to constantly live a life of growth and accomplishments? And that is through another step. You see, the Torah is not just the guidebook of spiritual perfection. It's also the spiritual nourishment. By learning Torah, by engaging in prayer, by doing the system, it strengthens my soul and makes it more noble, brings it to the fore. But the human being is ever challenged and ever in flux. If you'd like to understand yourself, if you'd like to understand why we do the things we do, You have to understand how we're affected, how we're affected by the two parts inside us and how life is ever a challenge. When a person sets his direction properly, he'll win some, he'll lose some, he's not going to win every battle, but he's leading a life of growing. The neshama, the soul becomes stronger and stronger. He becomes a more holy person. That part becomes more dominant. If a person gives in to his passions and his whims, that part becomes stronger And not only does he lose the reason for his creation, he becomes unbalanced, 
unsettled. He becomes an animal on two feet. God wants us to succeed, and God wants us to enjoy our stay on the planet. The Torah is a system of self-perfection, and it's also the system that will most allow a person to enjoy his or her stay here. But you have to follow it, you have to learn it. When you do that, you know, Shama comes to the fore, there's an inner glowing, the inner satisfaction, and you're leading a life of meaning and purpose, and you're leading a life in accordance to the way your Creator made you. Just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.